Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the movie podcast. My name is Daniel. I am one of your hosts today and joining alongside me to haunt the movie podcast. It's Shabazz. Hello, Shabazz. Hello. That's my haunting voice. You, you sound a little bit more like Gandalf there. I'll be honest with you. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're just like, you shall not pass I like that. I don't know if he sings it like that, though. I mean, I, I, I appreciate I appreciate a good Gandalf uh, you know, comparison any day. But a day when yeah. I'm trying to be spooky, I don't think I appreciate it much. Well, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll work on it. We'll work and see what we can do. Shay, how are you doing today? Doing great, man. Doing great. That's good. You know, we are heading into a busy season. As you, if you didn't know, TIFF is upon us. And starting on Thursday, we will have, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, a funny way of saying a cornucopia amount of uh, yeah. TIFF reviews coming your you way. You can't turn cornucopia into a funny word. It's already just too intense. It's true. Yeah. If you bust out cornucopia, it's like, okay, this guy you know, is this, this, this asshole. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This guy. Uh, you know, but we, but right before TIFF starts, um, I'm so excited because we get to, whenever we get opportunities to talk to, you know, the people behind the movies and shows that we love, uh, it's always special on the movie podcast. And, you know, as we know, there is a writer strike happening right now. There is an actor strike happening right now. Um, and we support them 100%. We stand with the writers, with the actors. There would be no movie podcast without writers or the actors bringing their words to life. Um, but one of the things that you know we've been lucky to do uh, is talk to a lot of the production members behind these shows that we don't typically get access to. Um, composers, we have a lot on the movie podcast, and we've been really lucky to have some incredible composers joining us over the last month here on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but to have a cinematographer joining us today, too, is very, very cool. So the movie we are going to be talking about today is A Haunting in Venice, which is directed by Kenneth Branagh. It's going to be releasing in theaters next week on September 15th. But before we get to all of that, this is the movie podcast. You could catch a brand new episodes all throughout the week with reviews and interviews and all the latest movies and series. We have some really incredible stuff coming up. So make sure you're following us on social media. Make sure you're following us on our personal pages. Everything you need to know is in the link below and in the show notes for this very podcast episode. If you want to watch a video version of this interview, go check it out on youtube.com slash the movie podcast again in the show notes below and you know what else is in the show notes below our discord we're having some great conversations in there we're having so many new people joining us every single day and we're building a really incredible and i think just you know optimistic community of just entertainment lovers so please join us on discord we're having a great time in there shay what's been your favorite part of using discord so far Honestly, I think it's the kind of um, realization uh, of our global reach. Uh, almost yeah. nobody, well, not, I don't say almost nobody, but there's there's truly not that many people in our in our Discord chat that are from North America. They all seem to be from completely different parts of the world. And that really just kind of scares me in, in, in a good way <laughs> of like, oh my God, people on the Fiji Islands are listening to us. Oh my God, people in Australia, Australia are listening to us. There's all that, that, oh my God, that's so crazy. Yeah, and and repeating our jokes and yeah. you know, like dropping our our lines and stuff like that. It's it's very cool to see. So if you've joined our Discord, if you're already in there and having a great time, thank you. You know, we absolutely love you know communicating with everyone in there. And if you're joining about, if you're thinking about joining a Discord, 
do it. You know, it's, it's awesome. We're having a great time talking and chatting it up in there. So we have a great time. We have a great thing going in there. So let's keep it happening. Um, as I already said at the top of the show, TIFF is upon us. Our reviews for movies that we've seen at TIFF will, stro- uh, will start dropping on Thursday. So look forward to that. We have a lot of reviews coming, a lot of fun stuff happening around TIFF. So you don't want to miss any of it but today is all about a haunting in venice like i said this is going to be releasing in theaters on september 15th and i want to say thank you to our friends at disney pictures canada for inviting us to watch this film now joining us on the movie podcast today is academy award-winning composer hilder gudnotir now forgive me my icelandic is not the strongest it's pretty but bad, that is the actually. best it's pretty <laughs> that is my best <laughs> way I, I, I was practicing it gudnotir um there's there's probably some vowels or consonants that's good enough for you that's good i'm glad um but what a what a fun conversation this was hilda was just so fun and bubbly and excited to talk about the music that she made for this film getting to collaborate with uh with kenneth brown and obviously um some of the projects that we fell in love with her work from like arrival and sicario and 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 so many more incredible projects um and we got a little bit out of her about the joker sequel which obviously won the academy award for the first joker film i got a little little, some little nuggets of information in there so if you're looking forward to joker 2 that's uh you want to listen out for this interview and we're also joined today by harris zamberlaukis who is the cinematographer where we just went super nerdy into this conversation we just went so in depth with like his his process and what it looks like to you know to make a film look like it's coming out of the era of this film shay what's been what was your favorite part about talking with harris uh i think when he got super super nerdy about the cameras that really just it felt like such a it felt such a moment where like the everything else kind of like disappeared and it was just harris and us just kind of talking about these lenses these lightings and like you could tell he was like Oh my God, sorry, I totally forgot we're, we're doing this interview. He just got yeah. so involved <laughs> and enveloped in his discussion that I, just seeing the joy from somebody who's clearly passionate about what they do, uh, I thought was just amazing. So that really kind of just spoke to me. It didn't feel like a junket anymore. It just kind of felt like just three dudes just having a conversation. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think three dudes just having a conversation is the best way to describe the movie podcast at the end of the day. I mean, that's how the internet would describe it. Yeah, <laughs> having a conversation with too much banter. Have we been having too much banter this episode? Well, uh, you're going to let us know in the comments below. They will. Of course, if you love what, if you like what we're doing here, we love what we're doing here. If you want to support the show, please check out our show notes below. Follow us on all of our socials. Drop us five stars wherever you listen to us, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify. Spotify, you could even leave comments on specific episodes. If you like what we're doing, you know, let us know. We read them all good and bad we will see them and we will acknowledge them or you know maybe we'll just delete them if they're super mean because you know what we don't need negativity in our lives mm-hmm. <laughs> without further ado please welcome hildor and harris to the movie podcast hi hildor how you doing i'm good thank you how are you we are doing wonderful yeah good. thank you so much for sharing your time with us today on the movie podcast of course my pleasure no, we are such massive fans of yours and your composition. So this is just very, very special for us. Thank you. Thank you. No, and we have to ask what we've loved so much about what Kenneth Branagh has done with the Perot films is that making each one feel distinct. How did you begin to find the sound for A Haunting in Venice? Mm. Well, that's that was exactly the the starting point, basically, that he that he raised. He he was very clear that he wanted this film. Uh, to be very different from the other two films, so so um, 
So we were really focusing just on this film specifically, and and there were no references to the to the other films really, and and uh, um, so 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 basically the the process was that he um he he had kind of general outlines of what he wanted to do and where he wanted to to take the project and how he wanted it to sound and and feel and um so he wanted the he wanted the score to be pretty dark of course as the as the film is much darker than the the previous ones and and um and he wanted it to to lean more towards like an atonal sense of tonality and he wanted it to be rather small in scale like he wanted it to feel like a chamber piece like he wanted it to to feel more uh, claustrophobic and, and confined because we're just in this in this film we're just staying in this one uh, this one house pretty much the whole uh, um palazzo pretty much the whole time so so he had these very clean clear um guidelines that he really stuck with the whole time so so i was able to i started pretty early in the project so i i joined um as they were still shooting so they were playing a lot of my music on sat so i was kind of hovering over the hovering over the um <laughs> the sat as, as they were as they were filming and then um uh after our first meetings yeah while they were still shooting I, I started writing music based on these um initial ideas and and uh, and i really started to to dive deep into the music history of 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 this time which i think is incredibly interesting and i think it's so fascinating to to really hear what people how people are processing these big changes that are happening and around the war times you know the the pre pre-war and 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 post-war um music that's being written and the questions that are being asked you know the the what is music and what is sound and and how are we playing our instruments and how are we orchestrating and and how can we abandon all the old melodic structures and and um musical structures and move toward forward towards a more um yeah atonal and mathematical approach or experimental approach and and break everything up you know so so that was kind of what i was playing within the music i was I was rocking um, as as the as the timeline. We see the timeline un, unfold in the um, in the story. You know, we're looking back at in, in scenes, for example, where we're staying with the story of the girl who was one of the first victims. You know, that that has some like this romantic melody that takes us back to the you know the the pre-war past times where melody was accepted and and allowed and into the forward movements of of where we um have the big reveal and and uh you know that's where we're moving towards the the future and and the music gets gets more atonal and and structural and and um you know but still you know it's interesting to look at how music can be abstract and at- atonal but still um emotional you know it's, it's still a part of this emotional landscape that's happening i think for for people at this at this time that i found that very interesting yeah and especially when you when you think of how music was transitioning in that period of time uh you definitely captured that and it was was very uh very fitting of the setting of where uh this movie's taking place is very haunting thank you yeah, I mean, I haven't listened to a lot of 1940s uh, Italian music, but <laughs> I would assume a lot of it sounds like that. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I wasn't I wasn't uh, trying to sound like another composer, but I was just imagining if I if I were a composer at this time, like how would I be writing melody? How would I be abandoning melody? You know, so 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 it's it's a, it was a very fun thought process. <laughs> Love that. That's got to be amazing. And I'm assuming you know your first time working with Kenneth Brana, that must have been such a great experience. Also, what was that like for you? It was just simply fantastic. He's he's just such a wonderful person. He's so generous and and uh, you know and open and accommodating and and uh, you know clear. He has such clarity, which which I think is it's so wonderful to create. In, in that environment, you know, where there's there's no confusion about anything. It's it's all like really, you know, constructive, forward thinking uh, um, uh, dialogues, you know, and, and it was really simply wonderful to work with him. That's wonderful. You know, we first fell in love with your work and in, in, in your cello solos from the films like Prisoners and Sicario and Arrival. What was it about the cello for you growing up that bonded you to that instrument? Uh well that's an interesting question because I I started playing it when I was very young and my, my it wasn't it was my mother basically that that kind of you know pushed it towards my direction so I didn't exactly <laughs> choose it myself in the beginning <laughs> but um but so I so I grew up playing it you know and I I grew up slapping it around and you know going to string rehearsals and 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 uh, you know string orchestra rehearsals and and classes and, and all of this and it's not exactly the most convenient of instruments to play you know so I definitely not no I, I never really you know I was I was I always had this kind of love-hate relationship to it and I had this uh, fantastic theory that the less I practiced the better I was which is a really <laughs> shitty theory if anyone's thinking of <laughs> trying common, no. <laughs> no exactly <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't work so so and it wasn't really until I stopped um uh, like studying it, you know, that I was, that I stopped being told how to play it, that I, you know, and I just started playing it for myself and, and without any, you know, obligation, so to say. That's kind of when I really fell in love with it. And that's when I realized how magnificent it was. And that's kind of when I started to, to find my own way of, of, of playing, you know, and, but it was wonderful to have a classical training and know how that, stuff you know how it works and how, how you can get the most out of it and then but it was yeah at the time when i realized oh, okay I, I i'm also like allowed to bring my own ideas and, and my own way of, of playing to it and then then i really fell in love and that was kind of like being married to 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 some dude for like you know 20 years and then all of a sudden <laughs> after all that time falling in love <laughs> yeah, it's, it's best when it happens like that i guess <laughs> <laughs> Now, well deserved. You you won an Oscar for your Joker score. I, we have to ask, what was going through your head when they called your name? Uh, that I think I just heard like bing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just noise. Yeah, exactly. And then, then in the back somewhere it was like, just don't fall down, just don't fall down, just get on stage and get off and what. Yes, and then everything will be fine. <laughs> that's amazing. Is there anything you can tell us about the Joker's sequel that you're working on? Because that's more of a musical this time. It is, yeah. There's there's lots of music. I, I, can, <laughs> I can tell you that. That's good, okay. Breaking news. <laughs> Breaking news. It will have lots of music. <laughs> 
<laughs> Amazing. That's wonderful. Hilder, we are such huge fans of yours. We wish you had some more time and hopefully we'll get to talk to you again. You're absolutely so lovely. So much fun. And we loved uh, your work on this film and in all of the films you've been part of. So we look forward to talking to you with you again. Thank, Thank you. you. Likewise. Thank you. Take care. Take Thank care. You. Hi, Harris. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Jen? Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for asking. Thank you. Yeah, we are. We're doing wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us on the movie podcast and congratulations on the film. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you, before we kind of get into haunting events, you want to talk about really quickly one of our favorite movies that you had a chance to, to shoot, which was Locke. I feel like a lot of the similar uh, styles were used with this movie where close-ups with these like claustrophobic kind of moments. It, it, can you speak on that a little bit? Well, um, in in some respects, yes, they're very similar in that um, there were huge limitations on Locke in time and space and uh, turning the car into a character and haunting was, was similar in that um, we were, we were kind of, uh, we had time constraints and schedule constraints. So we felt with Ken that we should, um, turn that into a positive and, and make some rules of engagement in a way uh, so the camera doesn't move very much. Um, it's very intimate. It's very personal. And when it does move, you've got to, I actually, much like a car where you connect it to the bonnet of a car, we, we, we connected a camera to, to Kenneth um, with a body cam rig. And, and that's how you actually, that's how, you, so you discover certain locations like the, um, like the basement, etc. You, you through he discovers it for the audience in a way, and the camera is attached to him. We didn't use Steadicam or traditional methods, so those constraints, you know, in a way, they they became um, our, our our language rather than our, our, our become a limitation. I love that. And yeah, those those shots of Kenneth walking through those corridors um, are so unsettling and you and you feel what he's feeling in those moments so like you definitely captured that that the haunting within that within that house um now we have to ask you know you worked with kenneth and all three of the perot films how did you approach making venice feel distinct but also within the same world of death on the nile and murder on the orient express that's a very good question it's it was hard um i guess one of the first things that we felt was that there was something we really enjoyed with Belfast and that um, there was something about the portraiture, something about the aspect ratio that we changed from 240 to 185 on Belfast that, and, and what that did in that it, it allowed the landscape to speak a little bit more, that the use of negative space was, was easier to accommodate with 185 than it was with 240. The use of weather would seem to be easier to use with 185, i.e. background rain and thunder. So all those things were, were things that we took away from, from Belfast and, um, uh, and, and that very, very intimate kind of portraiture that we did on, on Belfast was a way of getting in on the kind of human condition story of, of haunting in Venice because it's of all the three films we've done this was in my in my mind the most horrific crime of all um and and therefore led itself to a, a haunted story because uh, you know it, it's it's quite it's quite evocative that way but it it had to be felt rather than seen um and it had to be from a particular 
uh, point of view. So I guess those things were very important to us. And I think the other films had more of a, you know, Agatha Christie wrote all these stories where she traveled the world and she'd write about them in such detail and, and with such passion that you as the reader would get to travel in a time when travel was really difficult and, and, and expensive. So um, uh, she, she lived for the, the people of her generation in, in that way. And those were, were parts of the story um, in those previous films. They were not so, although Venice is a very key and very important part of this story, the idea that you, you view this city through her eyes, in a way, is not... Uh, was not as significant. It, it, it is a conduit to the human uh, soul and the human condition and this particular uh, haunted crime. It, it's wonderful, too, because you look at just the beautiful landscapes of Venice and, and, and Italy, and then you shoot within the singular location, and you really feel that sense of dread within, you know, within that mansion. What was it like shooting for you in that singular location and really feeling like Shay was saying earlier, like that claustrophobia of, you know, that the, like th that there could be an evil presence within this house. Well, in the house itself, I mean, that was a stage in the end that we had to, to, to build. We did shoot in real Venice and that palazzo exists. It's it, in its modern, uh, uh, in, uh, way right now it's in apartments and you, you, and, and it's obviously modern. Um, but I, I guess that, that claustrophobicness becomes much like the car in lock. It just becomes one of your um, your tools. And also, it's, it's how you shoot Venice and when you shoot Venice. So we went very early in the morning and we shot all our vistas. I mean, extreme. We started when it was dark and we pretty much ended a little bit after when the sun went up. And it's a very different place. And, and that seems to be timeless. Like, that's the part of Venice that seems to be the same um, throughout the ages, whereas you know, around about ten o'clock, when there's tourists and and visitors and 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 shopkeepers, etc., it's a very different and, and very contemporary Venice. And just little, th we I think by being we were very nimble, we were very a uh, very small crew in Venice, and we we just captured these moments. And we saw little things like we saw that you know there were way more birds in the morning, so we we shot a lot of birds in the morning, and we were literally in St Mark's Square. Um, filming pigeons um, and all of a sudden that opening shot of a seagull uh, coming down and, and, and grabbing a, a pigeon, that just happened. That's, oh uh, my gosh. That is not a planned, uh, scripted, but we thought, oh my God, you know, but those things only, I don't think unless we were so diligent in that we would be nimble, we will spend, we will be a small crew. We will be, not that I, I wish any harm on pigeons, but um, <laughs> uh, it just, it, that is, that's kind of life captured in Venice at that particular mm -hmm. time. And I think it's timeless and um, it shows the, the cycle of life in a, in, a, in a poetic way that was not planned, but wow. um, very well received. <laughs> yeah, what a, what a way to start the film. It definitely like, kept us on edge the rest of the movie. Yeah, we had a chance to speak with Hilda about, you know, the composition of the score. And she, she mentioned a lot about how she really went back to that that era and and used a lot of the, the, the motifs from that time. I'm curious for you, did you try to shoot differently at all in a way where you're like, OK, I want to try to really embody the 1940s in this. Were there any tactics you used or any styles that you really wanted to incorporate? Um, well, she's done a brilliant job with the score. It's, it's mesmerizing. And I've been a big fan of hers for years. Uh, it, for me, I, I felt 
one of the things I wanted to do, uh, which was uh, was to use contemporary lighting. Uh, and at that time, it was a mixture of candlelight and um, tungsten uh, lighting. We found original lighting fixtures, um, and we, we we used kind of uh, beeswax candles. I mean, down to that level wow. of uh, uh, what kind of wax would they have used, etc. And then we had to find kind of lenses and cameras that were would work in those environments. Now in the past, I think from a cinematography point of view, that's relied on, you know, ASAs have only gone so far, you know, they've never really gone past the, the 500, 800 uh, mark. And we've had to rely on uh, fast lenses in the 1.4 T1 area. And, and all films, however beautiful they are, they have something for me in, in that uh, aspect, in motion picture, where because both eyes are not always in focus and your focus puller has to choose one eye um, uh, most of the time to, to rack focus to, that I find that can be, after a while, distracting. Now, um, I know that we've sometimes had to almost soften a lens in general um, when I work with Panavision, that, that we, we might soften a, uh, if we want to go to a lower uh, f-stop, just do that, just to give it all that look, but I, I think we've given a look to the Poirot films that is extreme high fidelity. We've worked in 65 mil film before. We've worked at really low ASAs, and in this case, I wanted to shoot in candlelight and real incandescent kind of lighting of the period, and stay at T4, have both eyes in focus, and just uh, give a a depth of field that's not extensive. We're not talking Citizen Kane depth of field, but just what I felt was. A kind of enough for intimacy and for uh, the, that lack of distraction. So the Sony Venice two cameras had come out, and they were appropriately named and of adequate <laughs> um, ASA, um, thirty two hundred ASA, um, to pair up with some of the best glass. I think the crown jewels of Panavision, which they've kept for many many years, and they've not had much use until until recently because they s seem to match um, our kind of medium format digital sensors of the time and they're the ultra panatars and the auto panatars they were created for ben hur and they make 65 mil into a 2.67 aspect ratio a super wide wow. almost cinerama aspect ratio mm -hmm. and they've not been useful really for other um either 35 mil or previous digital formats but paired with the sony venice they give you an almost perfect 185 aspect ratio so that seemed to give us something that was incredibly lucid, incredibly clear, um, and yet we could shoot at below eye-level darkness, which also had an impact on our um, cast. So they really did feel like they were living in that environment. Definitely, yeah. You, you see that throughout the film, and it really is just a beautiful film to look at. You know, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I just really do want to say before we wrap, we cannot wait to see what you do with Beetlejuice 2 next year. Uh, we'll be careful not to say the name anymore. No. Um, no in case we have it popping up. Harris, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Pleasure talking Bye -bye. to you.